We're going to jump forward now to a point where Spode has been hit over the head by Gussie with a picture. And all you need to know in what follows is that Jeeves, a few pages earlier, has informed Bertie that Mr. Spode's potentiality for evil, sir, would be greatly lessened if you were to inform him that you know all about Eulalie, sir. So, Spode stood there blinking with the thing round his neck like a ruff, and the pause was sufficient to enable me to get into action. Give us a lead, make it quite clear to us that the party has warmed up and that from now on anything goes, and we Worcesters do not hang back. There was a sheet lying on the bed where Gussie had dropped it when disturbed at his knotting, and to snatch this up and envelop Spode in it was with me the work of a moment. It is a long time since I studied the subject, and before committing myself definitely I should have to consult Jeeves, but I have an idea that ancient Roman gladiators used to do much the same sort of thing in the arena, and were rather well thought of in consequence. I suppose a man who has been hit over the head with a picture of a girl chirruping to a pigeon and almost immediately afterwards enmeshed in a sheet can never really retain the cool, intelligent outlook. Any friend of Spode's with his interests at heart would have advised him at this juncture to keep quite still and not stir till he had come out of the cocoon. Only thus, in a terrain so liberally studded with chairs and things, could a perler have been avoided. He did not do this. Hearing the rushing sound caused by Gussie exiting, he made a leap in its general direction and took the inevitable toss. At the moment when Gussie, moving well, passed through the door, he was on the ground, more inextricably entangled than ever. My own friends advising me would undoubtedly have recommended an immediate departure at this point, and looking back, I can see that where I went wrong was in pausing to hit the bulge which, from the remarks that were coming through at that spot, I took to be Spode's head with the china vase that stood on the mantelpiece not far from where the infant Samuel had been. It was a strategical error. I got home all right, and the vase broke into a dozen pieces, which was all to the good, for the more of the property of a man like Sir Watkin Bassett was destroyed, the better. But the action of dealing this buffet caused me to overbalance. The next moment a hand coming out from under the sheet had grabbed my coat. It was a serious disaster, of course, and one which might well have caused a lesser man to feel that it was no use going on struggling. But the whole point about the Worcesters, as I have had occasion to remark before, is that they are not lesser men. They keep their heads. They think quickly and they act quickly. Napoleon was the same. I have mentioned that at the moment when I was preparing to inform Spode that I knew his secret, I had lighted a cigarette. This cigarette in its holder was still between my lips. Hastily removing it, I pressed the glowing end on the ham-like hand which was impeding my getaway. The results were thoroughly gratifying. You would have thought that the trend of recent events would have put Roderick Spode in a frame of mind to expect anything and be ready for it. But this simple manoeuvre found him unprepared. <laughs> With a sharp cry of anguish, he released the coat, and I delayed no longer, 
Bertram Worcester is a man who knows when and when not to be among those present. When Bertram Worcester sees a lion in his path, he ducks down a side street. I was off at an impressive speed, and would no doubt have crossed the threshold with a burst which would have clipped a second or two off Gus's time, had I not experienced a head-on collision with a solid body which happened to be entering at the moment. I remember thinking as we twined our arms about each other that at Totley Towers, if it wasn't one thing, it was bound to be something else. I fancy that it was the scent of eau de cologne that still clung to her temples that enabled me to identify this solid body as that of Aunt Dahlia, though even without it the rich, hunting-field expletive which burst from her lips would have put me on the right track. We came down in a tangled heap and must have rolled inwards to some extent, for the next thing I knew we were colliding with the sheeted figure of Roderick Spode, who when last seen had been at the other end of the room. No doubt the expl explanation is that we had rolled nor-nor-east and he had been rolling south-south-west, with the result that we had come together somewhere in the middle. A spode, I noticed, as reason began to return to her throne, was holding Aunt Dahlia by the left leg, and she didn't seem to like it much. A good deal of breath had been knocked out of her by the impact of a nephew on her midriff, but enough remained to enable her to expostulate, and this she was doing with all the old fire. What is this joint? she was demanding heatedly. A loony men? Has everybody gone crazy? First I meet Spinkbottle racing along the corridor like a mustang, and then you try to walk through me as if I were Thistledown, and another gentleman in the murderous has started tickling my ankle. <laughs> a thing that hasn't happened to me since the York and Anstey Hunt Ball of the year 1921. These protests must have filtered through to Spode, <laughs> and presumably stirred his better nature, for he let go, and she got up, dusting her dress. Now then, she said, somewhat calmer. An explanation, if you please, and a categorical one. What's the idea? What's it all about? Who the devil's that inside the winding sheet? I made the introductions. You, you, you've met Spode, haven't you, Mr. Roderick Spode? Mrs. Travers. Spode had now removed the sheet, but the picture was still in position, and Aunt Dahlia eyed it wonderingly. What on earth have you got that thing round your neck for? she asked, then in more tolerant vein. Wear it if you like, of course, but it doesn't suit you. Spode did not reply. He was breathing heavily. I didn't blame him, mind you. In his place I'd have done the same, but the sound was not agreeable, and I wished he wouldn't. He was also gazing at me intently, and I wished he wouldn't do that either. His face was flushed. His eyes were bulging, and one had the odd illusion that his hair was standing on end, like quills upon the fretful porpentine, as Jeeves once put it when describing to me the reactions of balmy Fotheringay Phipps on seeing a dead snip on which he had invested largely come in sixth in the procession at the New Park Market Spring Meeting. I remember once, during a temporary rift with Jeeves, engaging a man from the registry office to serve me in his stead, 
and he hadn't been with me a week when he got blotto one night and set fire to the house and tried to slice me up with a carving knife, said he wanted to see the colour of my insides of all bizarre ideas. But until this moment, I had always looked on that episode as the most trying in my experience. I now saw that it must be ranked second. This bird of whom I speak was a simple, untutored soul, and Spode, a man of good education and upbringing, but it was plain that there was one point at which their souls touched. I don't suppose that they would have seen eye to eye on any other subject you could have brought up, but in the matter of wanting to see the colour of my inside, their minds ran on parallel lines. The only difference seemed to be that whereas my employee had planned to use a carving knife <laughs> his excavations, Spode appeared to be satisfied that the job could be done all right with the bare hands. I must ask you to leave us, madam, he said. But I've only just come, said Aunt Dahlia. I am going to thrash this man within an inch of his life. It was quite the wrong tone to take with the aged relative. She has a very clannish spirit and, as I have said, is fond of Bertram. Her brow darkened. You don't touch a nephew of mine. I'm going to break every bone in his body. You aren't going to do anything of the sort. The idea! Here, you! She raised her voice sharply as she spoke the concluding words, and what had caused her to do so was the fact that Spode at this moment made a sudden movement in my direction. Considering the manner in which his eyes were gleaming and his moustache bristling, not to mention the gritting teeth and the sinister twiddling of the fingers, it was a move which might have been expected to send me flitting away like an adagio dancer, and had it occurred somewhat earlier, it would undoubtedly have done so. But I did not flit. I stood where I was, calm and collected. Whether I folded my arms or not, I cannot recall but I remember that there was a faint, amused smile upon my lips. For that brief monosyllable, you, had accomplished what a quarter of an hour's research had been unable to do, viz. the unsealing of the fount of memory. Jeeves's words came back to me with a rush. One moment the mind a blank, the next the fount of memory spouting like nobody's business. It often happens this way. One minute, Spode, I said quietly. Just one minute. Before you start getting above yourself, it may interest you to learn that I know all about Eulalie. It was stupendous. I felt like one of those chaps who press buttons and explode mines. If it hadn't been that my implicit faith in Jeeves had led me to expect solid results, I should have been astounded at the effect of this pronouncement on the man. You could see that it had got right in amongst him and churned him up like an egg whisk. He recoiled as if he had run into something hot, and a look of horror and alarm spread slowly over his face. The whole situation recalled irresistibly to my mind something that had happened to me once up at Oxford, when the heart was young. 
It was during eights week, and I was sauntering on the river bank with a girl named something that had slipped my mind, when there was a sound of barking, and a large, hefty dog came galloping up, full of beans and buck, and obviously intent on mayhem. And I was just mending my soul to God, and feeling that this was where the old flannel trousers got about thirty bobs worth of value bitten out of them, when the girl, waiting till she saw the whites of its eyes, with extraordinary presence of mind, suddenly opened a coloured Japanese umbrella in the animal's face. Upon which it did three back somersaults and retired into private life. Except that he didn't do any back somersaults, Roderick Spode's reactions were almost identical with those of this nonplussed hound. For a moment he just stood gaping. Then he said, Oh! And then his lips twisted into what I took to be his idea of a conciliatory smile. After that, he swallowed six, or it may have been seven times, as if he had taken aboard a fishbone. And finally, he spoke. And when he did so, it was the nearest thing to a cooing dove that I have ever heard. An exceptionally mild-mannered dove at that. Oh, do you? he said. I do, I replied. If he had asked me what I knew about her, he would have had me stymied. But he didn't. Uh, uh, how did you find out? I have my methods. Oh, he said. Ah, I replied, and there was silence again for a moment. I wouldn't have believed it possible for so tough an egg to sidle obsequiously, but that was how he now sidled up to me. There was a pleading look in his eyes. I hope you will keep this to yourself, Worcester. You will keep it to yourself, won't you, Worcester? I will. Thank you, Worcester. Uh, provided, I continued, that we have no more of these extraordinary exhibitions on your part of, what's the word? He sidled a bit closer. Uh, of course, of course. I, I'm afraid I have been acting rather hastily. He reached out a hand and smoothed my sleeve. D did I rumple your coat, Worcester? I I'm sorry, I, I forgot myself. It shall not happen again. It had better not. Good Lord, grabbing fellows' coats and saying you're going to break chaps' bones. I never heard of such a thing. I know, I know, I was wrong. You bet you were wrong. I shall be very sharp on that sort of thing in the future, Spode. Uh, yes, yes, I understand. I have not been at all satisfied with your behaviour since I came to this house. The way you were looking at me at dinner. You may think people don't notice these things, but they do. Of course, of course. And calling me a miserable worm. I'm sorry I called you a miserable worm, Worcester. I spoke without thinking. Always think, Spode. Well, that is all. You may withdraw. Good night, Worcester. Good night, Spode. He hurried out with bowed head, and I turned to Aunt Dahlia, who was making noises like a motor bicycle in the background. She gazed at me with the air of one who has been seeing visions, and I suppose the whole affair must have been extraordinarily impressive to the casual bystander. Well, I'll be... Here she paused, 
Fortunately, perhaps, for she is a woman who, when strongly moved, sometimes has a tendency to forget that she is no longer in the hunting field, and the verb, had she given it utterance, might have proved a bit too fruity for mixed company. Bertie, what was all that about? I waved a nonchalant hand. Oh, I just put it across the fellow, merely asserting myself. One has to take a firm line with chaps like Spode. And who is this Eulalie? Ah, there you've got me. For information on that point, you'll have to apply to Jeeves, and it won't be any good, because the club rules are rigid and members are permitted to go only just so far. Uh, Jeeves, I went on, giving credit where credit was due, as is my custom, came to me some little while back and told me that I had only to inform Spode that I knew all about Lulie to cause him to curl up like a burnt feather. And a burnt feather, as you have seen, was precisely what he did curl up like. As to who the above me may be, I haven't the foggiest. All that I can say is that she is a chunk of Spode's past, and one fears a highly discreditable one. I sighed, for I was not unmoved. One can fill in the picture for oneself, I think, Aunt Dahlia, the trusting girl who learnt too late that men betray, and the little bundle, the last mournful walk to the river bank, the splash, the bubbling cry. I fancy so, don't you? No wonder the man pales beneath the tan a bit at the idea of the world knowing of that. Aunt Dahlia drew a deep breath. A sort of soul's awakening look had come into her face. Good old blackmail! You can't beat it! Always said so, and I always shall. I'm going to leave you with a final glimpse of the cowed spode point where another of the plot's mysterious cogs, a notebook, surfaces. And it's, as in so many other instances, starts with a row. This row to which I refer was a kind of banging row, as if somebody were banging on something, and I had scarcely said to myself, what ho, a banger, when I saw who this banger was. It was Roderick Spode, and what he was banging on was the door of Gus's bedroom. As I came up, he was in the act of delivering another buffet on the woodwork. The spectacle had an immediate tranquilizing effect on my jangled nervous system. I felt a new man, and I'll tell you why. Everyone I suppose, has experienced the sensation of comfort and relief which comes when you are given the runaround by forces beyond your control and suddenly discover someone on whom you can work off the pent-up feelings. The merchant prince, when things are going wrong, takes it out of the junior clerk. The junior clerk goes and ticks off the office boy. The office boy kicks the cat. The cat steps down the street to find a smaller cat, which in its turn, the interview concluded, starts scouring the countryside for a mouse. It was so with me now. Snooted to bursting point by Pop Bassets and Madeline Bassets and Stiffy Bings and whatnot, and hounded like the Dickens by a remorseless fate, I found solace in the thought that I could still slip it across Roderick's boat. Spode, I cried sharply. He paused with lifted fist and turned an inflamed face in my direction. Then, as he saw who had spoken, 
The red light died out of his eyes. He wilted obsequiously. Well, Spode, what is all this? Oh, hello, Wooster. Nice evening. I proceeded to work off the pent-up Fs. Never mind what sort of an evening it is, I said. Upon my word, Spode, this is too much. This is just that little bit over the odds which compels a man to take drastic steps. But, Wooster, what do you mean by disturbing the house with this abominable uproar? Have you forgotten already what I told you about checking this disposition of yours to run amok like a raging hippopotamus? I should have thought that after what I said, you would have spent the remainder of the evening curled up with a good book. But no, I found you renewing your efforts to assault and batter my friends. I must warn you, Spo, that my patience is not inexhaustible. But, Worcester, you don't understand. What don't I understand? You don't know the provocation I have received from this pop-eyed finknottle. A wistful look came into his face. I must break his neck. You are not going to break his neck. Well, shake him like a rat. Nor shake him like a rat. But he says I'm a pompous ass. When did Gussie say that to you? He didn't exactly say it. He wrote it. Look, here it is. Before my bulging eyes, he produced from his pocket a small brown leather-coloured notebook. Harking back to Archimedes just once more, Jeeves's description of him discovering the principle of displacement, though brief, had made a deep impression on me, bringing before my eyes a very vivid picture of what must have happened on that occasion. I had been able to see the man testing the bathwater with his toe, stepping in, immersing the frame. I had accompanied him in spirit through all the subsequent formalities, the soaping of the loofah, the shampooing of the head, the burst of song. And then abruptly, as he climbs towards the high note, there is a silence. His voice has died away. Through the streaming suds, you can see that his eyes are glowing with a strange light. The loofah falls from his grasp, disregarded. He utters a, a triumphant cry. Got it! What ho! The principle of displacement! And out he leaps, feeling like a million dollars. In precisely the same manner did the miraculous appearance of this notebook affect me. There was that identical moment of stunned silence, followed by the triumphant cry. And I have no doubt that as I stretched out a compelling hand, my eyes were glowing with a strange light. Give me that book, Spode. Yes, I would like you to look at it, Worcester. Then you will see what I mean. I came upon this, he said, in rather a remarkable way. The thought crossed my mind that Sir Watkin might feel happier if I were to take charge of that cow-creamer of his. There have been a lot of burglaries in the neighbourhood, he added hastily. A lot of burglaries and those French windows are really never safe. So I uh, went to the collection room and took it out of its case. 
I was surprised to hear something bumping about inside it. I opened it and found this book. Look, he said, pointing a banana-like finger over my shoulder. There is what he says about the way I eat asparagus. I think Roderick Spode's idea was that we were going to pore over the pages together. When he saw me slip the volume into my pocket, I sensed the feeling of bereavement. Are you going to keep the book, Worcester? I am. But I wanted to show it to Sir Watkin. There's a lot about him in it, too. We will not cause Sir Watkin needless pain, Spode. Perhaps you're right. Then I'll be getting on with breaking this door down. Certainly not, I said sternly. All you do is pop off. Pop off? Pop off. Leave me, Spode. I would be alone. I watched him disappear around the bend, then rapped vigorously on the door. <laughs>